the Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. Now I am joined by Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid, Adrian Sweeney, who is director of Parrot's Court Springs Health Farm and newsreader at News Talk, and Dahi Daroshta, who is Lord Mayor of Dublin, who are going to be all reviewing the news the, uh, of uh, the weekend. Before we get into looking at the broader things, uh, briefly, Dahi, on the drive-in this morning for the first time ever, I saw the, the signs that are normally the traffic signs in the centre of Dublin City, all of them saying HSE warning, major overdose risk. That's a fairly bleak thing to see emblazoned across the city. It is. Um, it's it's very worrying what we're seeing that's been coming out in recent days in terms of some of the drugs that are on our streets, uh, in terms of what's there and what's there for people and the dangers that it's posed at the moment. So, And it is bad enough that you are putting warnings up all yeah. the way around the city for, for Absolutely drug users. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and people are being encouraged to not stray from the usual dealers where they get their own sources and to be careful what they're using due to the fact. And look, at, I think it's a very proactive measure that we're out there and we're very public warning people about the dangers that exist with particularly some of the heroin supply and what it's been mixed with in Dublin and at the moment. And is it that it is adulterated or that it is particularly pure and therefore more powerful than people expect? No, it is. It's it's that it's been mixed with something that's not exactly great and it's causing huge harm right across the city. I assume, though, if you are a regular heroin user, it is not something where it is a, a choice purchase. You you don't have money, you know, if you are in need of your regular fix, you are going to take it whether or not there's a risk. I, yeah, you'd agree with that. And that's probably what's most worrying, uh, worrisome for, for me, particularly when we look across the city and we look at those people that are, you know, they, they have an addiction issue and you're looking at the health, the really the, the dangers that's posed to them. And yeah, it, it's not good. It's not good for them. It's not good for the city. Um, and hopefully we can get through this period because we look at what's happening from a worldwide drugs perspective, like the supply of heroin is actually drying up. You look since the Taliban have come in Afghanistan, um, they've been pretty much wiping out what's out there at the moment, which poses huge dangers, maybe 12, 18 months down the line, where we're going to see the proliferation of synthetics right across Dublin. And, and that really, really worries me. So this is down to heroin supplies globally drying up. God, it's amazing. It's not something you think of yeah. in terms of a global supply chain, but I suppose like any but other commodity. It, it has the knock-on effect world. and it comes down to the streets. There is much that we have to discuss. The Business Post is leading with FAI plunged into fresh funding crisis over CEO pay deal. And of course, Sinn Féin is in an awful lot of the papers because this is the weekend of their Ordesh and they're getting support from very unexpected quarters. We will discuss that and more after this break. I'm joined uh, by Dahi Daroshta, who is the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Sarah Benson, who is CEO of Women's Aid, and Adrian Sweeney, who is newsreader here at News Talk. And during the break, we were just picking up on, on what we've been saying before the break, which was the, the warnings all the way around the centre of Dublin City about the heroin supply in the city being dangerous. We've seen instances of overdoses and people being very sick in the last couple of days. And literally all of the things that normally say bus gate or turn left or those, those signs are now dedicated to big red warnings saying HSE warning, um, potentially dangerous heroin on the market. Adrian, you were saying that's going to be backed up with people going around shopping centres giving out leaflets. Yeah, so Dublin City Council, so the, the exact terminology that's on those signs this morning is extreme overdose warning, which is frightening to see that flashing in front of you as you go around the city, but um, Dublin City Council is about to um, also distribute posters around shops um, around the city today to basically back up the message that you know we're staring down the barrel of a, a pretty bad disaster here because um, as we 
discussed earlier, people need to get their supply from somewhere and they're not going to turn it down, I imagine. And this goes within this area. You were saying that this could be whatever about the current supply and the challenges that are coming. It is nothing compared to what we may see in a year or more. Yeah, I mean, the issue here is the fact that uh, heroin products are being cut with synthetic opioids. And a lot of us will have seen there's programs on Netflix and documentaries around the synthetic opioid um, crisis. So this thing like fentanyl in the US. Fentanyl, oxycodone, oxycontin. And in fact, just saying but off air that, you know, in, in Mexico, fentanyl is now one of the largest drugs you know, it used to be cocaine, but it's cheaper to produce. But the, the problem with it is it is so many times stronger than heroin that even somebody who has been a long term heroin user can have a fatal overdose very, very easily. And that's the, the, the risk. And I think it's really important that these public awareness uh, messages are going out because unfortunately, those of us who live in kind of urban areas and particularly in Dublin, you can see, you can actually see heroin use on the streets. But it's really important that we don't kind of marginalise and consider those people in the shadows. Those are people you have no idea what brought them to that position. But if there are people who may be overdosing, the general public also need to be vigilant to see if somebody needs help, if they because they may need it urgently, very, very fast. So I think it is, you know, very welcome that that's happening. And there are things that have been, you know, approved public policy like safe injecting sites in, in this city, which have not actually come to fruition. And I think we really, really need to look at that again around kind of safe use for those who are very vulnerable. Well, particularly if, as you say, fentanyl is on the way, because the, the damage that it has done, I mean, you look at places like, um, I think of it, uh, San Francisco, there are whole sections of that city that are now wastelands thanks to drugs. That's it. And, and Is that what's coming for Dublin? I, from speaking to people in the industry that work with people in addiction, yeah, we've a real worry that in probably about 18 months with the drying up of supply from heroin coming from the likes of Afghanistan and things like that because of the Taliban, that yeah, coming down the tracks, we're going to probably be seeing more deaths. You'll see much more of that zombie-like um, appearances around the streets and things like that because as the heroin supply kind of dries up, it's going to be replaced with synthetics. And that's what's happened across the world and it's only a matter of time, I think, before it comes to Ireland. Is there much that can be done in the face of that being a likely end result to prevent it? Um, I think more work with, with people in the throes of addiction. Um, you've just mentioned the, the likes of the super, supervised injection facilities, really moving our drugs policy to treating it as a health issue and, and helping people not to go down that line. It will happen with a certain cohort of people, but much more in terms of even, like we can see the education campaign that you saw driving in here this morning, maybe we can do more over the next 18 months. In terms but that's of where we currently stand. That's yeah. that's before fentanyl takes yeah. hold. Which 100%. I mean, the, the general consensus around the uh, table here seems to be whether we like it or not, that is what is going yeah. to happen. That's the way the market is going to go. That's going to be a terribly bleak picture. Absolutely. Like there's, there's cities like LA, like whole swathes of Los Angeles that people just, uh, retail has closed down, offices, they've just upped and moved their staff out. But because it's too unsafe, I mean, as you say, zombies on the streets, it's frightening. And that could, if we're not careful, um, that could happen to Dublin as well and other urban cities. Well, well, let's look at the things that are making the news uh, this morning. Obviously, that isn't covered much in uh, any of the news reports or analysis because it is literally occurring as we speak. But as if you do drive through the centre of the city, as uh, Adrian was saying, you will see what well, extreme overdose warnings. Isn't that the phraseology yeah. up on all of the sides? Sinn Féin uh, coverage, uh, because it is there or that. And Sarah, there is... There's the most remarkable support for Sinn Féin, remarkable in where it comes from. Because yesterday I was talking to Louise O'Reilly, the Sinn Féin Enterprise spokesperson. I was asking about relations with FDI and the multinationals and she was saying that there had been meetings with all of them and that they were very pragmatic about Sinn Féin being in government. 
Johnny Ronan, the developer Johnny Ronan, he of Ireland's potentially largest office building, he's on the front of the Sunday window saying there's nothing to fear from Sinn Féin on housing and that they're pragmatic about housing. Yeah, I mean, certainly um, that, that, that's a surprising coupling uh, to see. Johnny Ronan the- and Sinn Féin, you never thought you'd see the day. I think what this is indicative of is that Sinn Féin are clearly, you know, very, very serious about their prospects for being the the largest party um, and forming a government. I don't, I don't know that their optimism around going solo, you know, the numbers don't seem to stack up there, but they clearly are reaching out. And I think Ono Brin is, is particularly noted as reaching out, uh, you know, to all significant stakeholders uh, in preparation for, you know, what what they hope will be, uh, you know, um, being the the leading party in government uh, next time round. So it, it makes a very interesting read just to kind of, um, you know, what, what, what one of the, the, the things that was interesting is that what uh, is noted about Owen O'Brien's kind of public persona online seems to be tempered when he's in those discussions and it's very much focused on clarifying what their policies are, the nuts and bolts, what it is, what it is not. And, and clearly and not this particular particular developer is, is receptive to it, which is interesting. Are we overblowing, Adrian, the, the level to which it is a foregone conclusion that Sinn Féin are going to at least lead and possibly be the entirety of the next government? I, I, I don't think so because there is huge popular support for them. So I think it's a reality that um, we, we need to face at the moment. There will be a change and there'll be a dramatic change at the next polls. But how that change takes place and what format um, the government you know, uh, will take um, is still unknown. And Sinn Féin is keeping it quite vague, really, um, in terms of the messages that they're sending out about coalitions or the possibility of... As Although Pierce Doherty was, was fairly aggressive in saying, in an, well, I mean, any party in an ideal world doesn't want any partners if they can avoid it. Yeah, well, uh, at the Ordesh, um, Mary Lou MacDonald basically said it, it's down to the voters at the end of the day, um, as it is. So we don't know yet. We don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, there is going to be a massive shift in the political landscape um, after the next election. We do know that Sinn Féin is going to campaign now and probably for the duration until the next election on essentially three things, on housing, health and on the cost of living. One of those is to some extent outside government control because it's a function of of broader economics. But the first two, it will be very difficult for people in your party on the doorsteps to fight back when the issue of housing and health is the prime ones. Well, listening to what was said yesterday where Mary Lou was talking about, you know, building um, genuinely affordable whole uh, homes, you're looking at getting the targets right, cutting rents, giving a month uh, rent back to everybody and things like that. That all sounds good. It all sounds great. But also they talk about delivering the biggest housing programme in, in, in the state, which currently Dara O'Brien is doing. This is not a money question. You know, these things take time to ramp up. If we look... Even in the figures, like we're up January, September, things are up about 14.5% at the moment. You can see Q2 and Q3 were both up about 15%. So things are happening, but it does take time. We've always said that it takes time. Um, and since they've commenced, I think there's 24,000 commencement orders that have happened this year. So right, it doesn't get us up to that magic target that even some people were talking about 33,000 homes a year. Maybe we need to get to 40 to be realistic. But it's genuinely. But that's a hard it, argument to make on a doorstep. I mean, absolutely. the fact that there is a plan in place doesn't bother many parsnips. No. If Sinn Fein are showing up saying we'll build houses and they haven't, you saying well we haven't but we're trying isn't much. Well, of a no, comeback. I'm saying that we have, but I'm saying this is a capacity issue and it's not for a want of trying. Like, we've but will voters accept that? Do you think? Well, that's up to them. You know, it really is. Like, that's the joys of democracy. Maybe some people will see progress. They'll see that like there was genuinely a decade in this country where we built no houses. 
and to build capacity from a stop start it has been hard so no But again Sinn Féin now has that wonderful capacity to point at both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and, and say Oppos- was in there during exactly, that decade and opposition parties can always do that in a general election and, and that's the joys of election when we come probably towards the end of next year early 24 right, Sarah, you, see that, you, know? you put yourself in an advisory capacity if you're advising Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, what can they say in opposition to housing and health because I would have thought they are very easy sticks to beat the government with and very effective sticks. Oh gosh, no, I don't, I don't uh, brand myself as a political advisor, never have. Um, I, I think that they are, they, they're enormous issues. I think health is probably even a more thorny one because it's very hard to even get a line of sight on the, the different uh, kind of working components of the HSE, you know, wh- where the budgets lie, what they're being spent on. Um, I, I know the housing is is certainly front and centre and it has been horribly exacerbated by the necessary response, humanitarian response we've had to give to Ukraine and, um, you know, and global, you know, migration, which, you know, has, has added a pressure point. Um, to my mind, the HSE is, is probably an even more thorny one. Um, it's very difficult to see how... Um, you can see progress when it's it's very hard to actually see what the moving parts are in terms of a health uh, And it's plan. very easy to point to the failures. I mean, the children's hospital overrun, the list goes on and on and on. And again, a very easy one to campaign on. Dahi, you want to Just, seems we're heard in the papers, the Sindo today has it, uh, a very positive news for, for Stephen Donnelly in terms of a thousand hospital consultants have signed up to the new contract, which is really positive. If we read the polls, nobody was going to sign up for it. Over 33% of them have. So I think that's a big move and I do think that will help. When we consider Sloan Chicare, obviously we have issues, but that's right across the party. It's an agreed plan across everybody. The, while we're on the topic of um, Sinn Féin, Adrian, uh, putting on your news talk hat, I want to get your view on the other thing that relates to Sinn Féin in a lot of the papers, which is the lawsuit that Chris Andrews is currently engaged in because Chris Andrews, which he has every right to do if he so chooses, has launched a defamation action against the Irish Times. Interestingly, not only has he launched a defamation action against the paper, he has directly launched an action against Harry McGee, the journalist who wrote the piece in question, who would be a very well-respected journalist and very well-established journalist. lot of criticism from political sources uh, ranging from the Taoiseach down saying that this is, I think the term that gets used is a, a, a slap lawsuit, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. What do you think? Well, there's been a strategic change and I think there's been a lot of commentary in the papers and rightly so today about this because there's been, it, there seems to have been a, a, a strategic party decision made somewhere along the line um, that uh, defamation laws were going to be uh, heavily used against journalists. Um, because we've seen Mary McDonnell currently has a lawsuit in, in, in process against RTEs. Correct, that correct, yeah. And the Council of Europe um, has made a, a very uh, sweeping statement against that, uh, accusing Mary Lou McDonald of the intimidation of journalists over that case against RTE, which is a very strong um, thing to say, but it is a worrying trend because, you know, normally the process, if somebody has an issue um, with regard to uh, an article written or a broadcast piece, you go to the press council and you make a complaint with the press ombudsman. And interestingly enough, um, the last Sinn Féin complaint made to the press council was in 2017 by Gerry Adams. Since then, it's only been legal proceedings um, against... Now, of course, what I was going to say what Sinn Féin would say. What Sinn Féin are saying, because Mary Lou uh, addressed this, Mary Lou McDonald addressed this over the weekend, she said everybody has a right to vindicate their good name and that if it, uh, a line is crossed, 
they have a total right to uh, such vindication through the courts. Yeah, and no, nobody is denying that because everybody has a right to protect their own name. What Leo Varadkar said about it, though, was that normally the first step is to take a complaint against, uh, uh, to the press ombudsman about it. And that should be the first step that is taken. Um, so nobody's denying that they have a right to do it. But the um, the broad spectrum of cases that are being taken, a lot of commentators in their papers today are saying that this is turning into the intimidation of journalists, which is a worrying trend. And again, that, that doesn't impinge on the, the fact that any individual has the right to take it through a court process and the courts may find either in their favour or not. The broader implication, though, is it that is it that journalists become wary? Is that the thing? Naturally enough, if you're going to be right. I mean, that that's what the outcome is going to be, that if you're writing a piece about Sinn Féin, that everybody is going to be dotting their, as they should, right? Uh, you know, dot their I's and cross their T's. But there could be some stories that are not going to be published because the particular case that we're talking about here um, against the Irish Times, and again, this the, the, the departure on this is the personal case taken against, against Harry McGee. McGee. Mm. And that's the difference with this. So yes, you absolutely would become a lot more wary. And it'll be interesting to see. And again, that, that case may be found in either favour. We won't know. That's now a, a matter to be adjudicated before the courts. The other thing that is making the papers uh, today is the FAI. Just at the point where you thought the FAI had sort of gone away and was business as usual. It seems they're business as usual, but the wrong kind. Dahi, uh, they're back with um, uh, the front page of the business post. Um, FAI plunged into funding crisis over CEO pay deal. Yeah. Very, very worrying. It's just the story that just won't go away for the FAI, isn't it? Like we look at the... How? The How did they get themselves back? In the, like surely the one God thing you do is say, say, dot every eye on this. You would think that, but we see the stories around 12,000 euros worth of holiday pay and 8,500 euros worth of travel expenses. Um, I suppose the, and the, the suggestion one is that that combined takes the chief executive over the over pay the, cap the, the, that because it was to be aligned with a sec gen. Um, the one plus I see here is that Sport Ireland and their auditors cause have called this out and they did notice it. So the eye is upon them. But I just you look at there's so much going on in in the FAI for their for the government funding like they committed to 160 recommendations. There's still 30 incomplete, and we're looking as well. We saw on Thursday at the uh, at the EGM how in terms of the problem that they're having in order to achieve their gender quota on, on the board, we, we saw that they were looking to extend the board members from 12 to 14. But then, well, the opponents were happy to do this, but they wanted, this is the age-old question that's been dominating the board of the FAI for a while. They wanted eight football people and six independent and they weren't happy to have an independent split well, see, in terms of all seven. Of that, seven. I, see, I, could, I could understand all of that. I could understand maybe slowness, maybe ineffectiveness, anything along those. I just don't understand how the FAI can have gone through what it went through and not say, whatever else we do, let's make absolutely sure we get the accounting spot on. You take that and the organisation, <laughs> I think was as Sean O'Casey said, they're in a state of chassis and it's just not going away. Is it going away? Because the, the suggestion no. here, Sarah, is that this could impact on, on the government uh, bailout funding. Malcolm Burns, sports minister, saying that the bailout funding through to 2026 is at risk until all of this is resolved. That's the last thing they need. Well, there's two things standing in the way of their government funding. One is this uh, ongoing issue. The other is why they cannot seem to arrive at a 40%, 40-60% gender uh, quota. And their outgoing um, chairman, uh, Ray Barrett, it was mooted that it would be a female chair appointed and apparently that is not 
uh, something that's going ahead and instead a man has been nominated and now they're struggling to get, uh, uh, you know, agreement as to bringing in two other uh, females. Now, I know it is ostensibly whether they would be for football or independent, but the the matter, you know, the facts are currently that that vote didn't pass and, you know, that, that raises questions. But the other is the now, internal... Let me, let me, just because I, I, it is, I'm, I think I'm contractually required to do it, <laughs> let me tiptoe into devil's advocacy on this one. <laughs> is there any argument in favour, or not in favour, but is there any argument um, in, in support of their case whether you might say football is, whether for good or ill a predominantly male sport still, if you look at participation and therefore they have a, a predominantly male cohort to select from. I take it by your face. The answer is going <laughs> who, to be an Who qualified for the World Cup? I was going to say, what's the biggest success we've seen in the FAI over the past that, 24 months and it's been the women's national team? That is all I have to say on that one. The, in relation to the money, I, I think it is absolutely mind-boggling that this has happened. Uh, you know, it is, it is a well-established tenet of uh, employment uh, practice and, and regulations that you don't get paid for your holidays if you don't take them. Holidays are not a benefit. They are, are, are something that, you know, are rightly in place to allow people to recover and refresh themselves. It was clearly stated for all of the other staff in the FAI that you cannot get paid for your holidays. You may be able to carry some forward. So it's not just an external issue. This is an internal issue. You know, and there's this two, is, there's holidays and there's travel expenses issues, isn't benefit there? benefit in kind is what it's alluded to. So whether that was vouched or unvouched, and that is it's something I don't know the answer to, but it would be certainly a question. But the idea that one rule for the most senior person in the organisation, and, and I, I acknowledge that it was, it, it has been stated that this was not the responsibility of the CEO in this instance. It was a decision by some members of the board. And there's no but, suggestion of impropriety. It is a suggestion of failure to meet the accounting requirements in respect of pay caps and all the rest. Indeed, but what that leaves is that you have, you know, a message being given to the entire workforce of the FAI, which can be nothing but very disheartening and you know and and I believe they raised they raised it as a serious concern and then you have the external factor of what this means for their funding I just can't understand why they have got this so wrong and have have yet to resolve it is the other thing because this is not the first day that we have had this news this has been rumbling now through the weekend uh, 53106 at a cost of 30 cent if you want to get in touch 087-1400-106 on WhatsApp coming up after the break we're going to be talking about the rise of the far right because we're seeing um, instances of um, further far-right action in Ireland and we have overnight seen um, very worrying scenes in in relation to counter-protests and protests at the Armistice Day um, celebration is probably the wrong phrase commemoration at the Cenotaph in London back after this break. I'm joined by Dahi Dilrosha, who is the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid, and Adrian Sweeney, who is Director of Power Cor- Powers Court Springs Health Farm. We're going to have to find a way to shorten you, Adrian. It's very hard to say, and newsreader here at uh, News Talk. Um, there's been protests in the UK. There was a demonstration in the UK around Armistice, Armistice Day in relation to support for Palestine. There was then a counter protest against that that erupted into violence and fairly horrendous scenes in and around the Cenotaph in London. With this is George Parker, FT's uh, political editor. George, we'll talk a little bit about the political environment and Suella Braverman's uh, responsibility for creating the environment that this kind of stuff happens in. But for those who haven't seen the footage, can you just explain to us what actually occurred? Well, there were two separate things happening on the streets of central London yesterday. The first was a a long-planned pro-Palestinian demonstration, which the police estimate was attended by about 300,000 people, which, uh, though there was a bit of trouble there, it was on a, on a much, uh, it was a fairly small scale. 
There was then a separate counter-demonstration involving right-wing groups, which involved people having skirmishes with the police and breaking through police lines near to the Cenotaph, which, of course, is the National War Memorial in central London. And uh, there were a number of arrests that took place there, 126 arrests overall at these two demonstrations yesterday, the vast majority of which the police say were involving these right-wing thugs, football hooligans draped in the English flag and and basically singing football chants and stuff like that. And turning this into a matter of, of sort of xenophobia and, and jingoism, isn't that essentially what they were at? Yeah, they, they, they were. I mean, they were sort of singing um, songs associated with the um, English football, national football team, singing England Till I Die. Um, a lot of the, the police say a lot of these people were associated with uh, football hooligan groups. Um, but the problem was it was uh, this, these events took place around Armistice Day um, at the Cenotaph. And the scenes that you could see on your TV screens were, were really quite ugly. Um, and as, as I said, there were sort of two, these two things happening in parallel yesterday. There was the organised march involving pro-Palestinian protesters, which didn't go past the Cenotaph. And then this counter-demonstration by right-wing groups, which uh, very much did. And a lot of criticism has been laid at Suella Braverman's door for creating the environment in which these kind of far-right activities can uh, occur. Is there justification for that uh, criticism? Well, look, I mean, one of the things that's been said this morning by Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, is that um, that she was seeing sowed, sowing the seeds of hatred and that, and met the Mayor of London, Labour Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, said the violence was the direct result of what Suella Braverman had said. I mean, what she actually said last week was that the Palestinian march was a hate march, um, something which obviously is very strongly contested by the people who took part in that march. And then she also said that the police, the Metropolitan Police, were showing bias in the way they treated different types of demonstration, suggesting that they were being softer on protests with a left-wing um, flavour, including this pro-Palestinian march, and being more robust on demonstrations with a right-wing flavour of the kind we saw at the Cenotaph yesterday. So a lot of people, in particular the Labour side, see, saw that as sort of inciting right-wing groups to come out and run these protests against the Palestinian marches. Um, and certainly that's the view of many senior Labour politicians, but I have to say also privately among a number of senior Conservative MPs as well who think that Rishi Sunak should sack the Home Secretary for inflaming things rather than using a very sensitive position in government to try to calm community tensions. There is some analysis in, in the papers today saying that Richie Sunak now faces a position where he can be an unpopular Prime Minister, as he currently is, or he can be seen to be both an unpopular and a weak Prime Minister by not firing Suella Breverman. Has she therefore um, forced his hand? Are we going to see her get fired this week? I mean, we don't know for sure. I think if I was a betting man, I would say that I think she is likely to, to be sacked. So one of the things that happened last week was this article I was referring to where she made these comments wasn't cleared by number 10 Downing Street. Downing Street made it clear that they didn't agree with what Suella Braverman said. So in this extraordinary position where the Prime Minister is being defied by his own Home Secretary on one of the most sensitive issues. So if for that reason alone, you would think that Rishi Sunak would want to assert his authority and to remove Suella Braverman. There are some people in the Conservative Party who think that Suella Braverman is pushing her luck to the very limits because she wants to be sacked, um, that she fancies a run at the Tory leadership if and when the Conservative Party loses power in an election next year, and that she might find it more convenient to be running her leadership campaign from the back benches, where she'll be even more unrestrained in what she can say. 
and the slight whiff of martyrdom may help her cause. Is that it? That would be that would be part of the part of the argument, and um, you know that she will be seen as this person who's prepared to speak uncomfortable truth to power. Um, there's a linked thing happening next week, which is that the Supreme Court over here is going to be ruling on whether Suella Braverman's policy of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda is legal or not. That's happening on Wednesday. And there's a bit of a view that if the Supreme Court go, rules against Suella Braverman, that she will then be, become a vocal advocate of Britain pulling out of the European Convention of Human Rights. Again, something she might find it easier to do from the backbenches. George, thank you very much for that. That's George Parker, who is the Financial Times political editor. And that rise of the right and that fostering of extreme right-wing views, we are seeing instances of that closer to home. And Sarah, I wanted to ask you about this because the Ashling Murphy uh, trial, of course, uh, concluded during the week. We um, saw a life sentence handed down to her killer. But we also saw uh, a lot of the, the online discourse trying to frame her murder as if it was a legacy of immigration policy rather than the actions of one hateful individual. Yeah, absolutely. And this precedes actually the verdict coming out uh, last week in the Ashley Murphy murder case. What we have seen is, and I think um, what George Parker has just given an example of there, is that you have a cohort of far right who will leverage any number of different vehicles and distort them with the express purpose of um, putting forward very hateful, uh, usually racist, often also homophobic um, and actually misogynistic in many cases um, uh, uh, perspectives and, uh, and, and policy positions. Um, but what they are also particularly using is this guise of, you know, um, violence and particularly looking at the safety of women. Um, and it is uh, really distasteful. It has already manifested in some of the public protests uh, around uh, kind of refugee and asylum accommodation. And that narrative has been something that has been pushed. So we absolutely saw it immediately after the um, the verdict in the Ashing Murphy case on uh, social media. I, I how, also, how did it manifest in social media? From well, I think that's another issue again, though, is the, the issue of disinformation and algorithms on social media. And so in particular, we have seen it on X, formerly Twitter, which we also know has uh, reduced massively its level of monitoring. Uh, we have bots all over it. And so what you see is it's almost like a swarm um, and comments. Uh, You've and seen this in response to your to, to um, your own tweets. Is that correct? Uh, our own, actually. We saw it happening in response to others. So media outlets, for example, had news stories and all of the comments were around uh, the fact that, uh, that the perpetrator in this instance was a migrant. And it, there is a dog whistle of racism uh, associated with this and other violence against women um, uh, narratives. And and what is so insidious about it is that when you dig into the policies of these groups, that they are anti-reproductive rights. They are very, very uh, traditional in their perspectives, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, male entitlement. Uh, It's very much what we sometimes refer to as this white knight syndrome is that men are there to protect women, but therefore women are not actually equals or empowered individuals themselves. So, the other thing is it distracts completely from the fact that uh, violence against women is, you know, has knows no race, no uh, class, no faith. Um, and and the, the reality is in this country that, uh, you know, Women's Aid have maintained the femicide report since 1996, <clears throat> um, 263 women uh, up until the day of Ashling Murphy's, uh, the, the verdict in the trial. And now 264 women have died in violent circumstances. The vast majority 
majority are Irish women. The vast majority of perpetrators uh, in cases resolved are Irish men. And it distracts and deflects from the fact that male violence against women is something that is a reality everywhere. Um, so and am I right in saying that in the vast majority of those cases, the likelihood is also that the perpetrator was somebody who was in or had been in a relationship with the woman who was the victim? Absolutely. Uh, we know that actually I mean, the, the, the case of Ashley Murphy was relatively rare in the, in the sense that 13% of women who've been killed in violent circumstances have been killed by a stranger, 87% by somebody known to them, over 50% it will be a current or former intimate partner. Which is horrifying that the majority of female deaths are of somebody in whom you should be able to have the most implicit trust. Absolutely, yes. It's the most, it's the most egregious violation of, of trust. And also it's, it's women experience violence, um, abuse, sexual assault in, in ways that are different to men in that it, the reality is for, for men, uh, violence is much more likely to be perpetrated against them in a public space. Um, whereas for women, it's their own home is the most dangerous place. And the fact that you cannot therefore get away from it, that it's the place where, in a man's case, it is the refuge. In the woman's case, it is the source of Absolutely, violence. yeah. Texas say Justine Valdez was killed by an Irishman. Sarah Everard was killed by an English policeman. This myth of vetting must be tackled. This, again, is this sort of a far-right um, suggestion that in some way, if you shut our borders, this problem would r- resolve. Adrian, how significant is the, quotes rise of the far-right? Because... One of the things I don't know, do you remember the truckers protest in Canada? I was watching that and I was thinking, if you actually look, it takes up miles of road. There's only about 12 people. They just each have an Arctic, so it looks uh, disproportionately large. Same sort of thing can happen on social media. It can feel like a grassroots movement and then you discover there's only actually seven of them. Is it significant or is it not? Well, it is because <clears throat> the issue with social media, as we said, um, that the algorithm will promote this content that is causing the most controversy. So you're more likely to see it, unfortunately, the more controversial that it is and the more debate that it whips up. I I think Sarah, you know, raised the point that distraction is the issue here. Like the the issue is violence against women. And yet we've seen specifically around this case um, with Ashley Murphy's trial that even um, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt was targeted online afterwards. And uh, we had the Irish Light, which is a a publication by Gemma O'Doherty and she put a video out online pasting his face over um, a video of Alice in Wonderland. And like that's just a complete distraction from the the topic that we should be discussing and, and as we said, the violence against women and the cultural norms that we have here that allow that to happen is really the debate we should be having. But actually, you know, there's a lot of coverage in today's newspapers that are distracting from that about even the far right, it, it could be a small amount of people and it probably is. It's not what, you know, the man on the street hopefully thinks. But at the same time, it is pr- proliferating online. So we- I've been surprised by if you, because it, it is one of those things that you, you see it. It's sort of, it's like switching on the light and seeing insects appear. The same kind of thing when in response to particularly political, if you do an interview with a politician and they retweet the fact that they have been in it, the, the hundreds of responses that you see of people viciously and aggressively. Dai, your own experience? Um, well, the point I was just going to make was it was only a few weeks ago that people rocked up outside Dáil Éireann and had a gallows and effigies of hanging politicians. You know, in, in terms of what we look is, and, and you see these groups, what they tend to do is they prey on fear and they look to hijack it. And in the case of Ashling. Um, extremists definitely tried to hijack her murder. I mean, we saw dreadfully where they were filming videos at her graveside and, and really pushing that kind of message. And, you know, and like the statistical reality is in terms of violence against women. 
but hijacking that in terms of do those who raise the the whole unvetted males and the migrants piece around that in direct direct position did they want to do it um, just to keep women safe or was it to push that mer- message of keeping people out of our country etc um, and when they prey on fear it gives them that opportunity to push it out to a much wider audience Well I, ironically as we're talking Elon Musk the owner of Twitter his, his most uh, one of his most recent tweets this morning is a two word um, sentiment amplify empathy so mm-hmm. I'm sure that'll be most of it resolved Sarah let's uh, cure some of what we've been talking about in terms of the distraction from the underlying issue in the week where we have seen the conviction of uh, Joseph Bushka, from your perspective as CEO of Women's Aid, what is the broader significance of the case? What is it that we should learn from the case? What are the implications? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is any time a case like this resolves, our thoughts are with the family and friends because the resolution of a criminal case can bring some form of justice within the very narrow parameters of the criminal justice system and that's always to be welcomed. But, you know, the the, the trauma continues, nothing is going to bring Ashling back. I, I think we've talked a lot and a lot of the words I've heard, you know, kind of used are things like watershed moment and, you know, a moment in time. But, but the reality is that 18, 19 now, more women have lost their lives through violence in this country since Ashling Murphy has um, was killed. And at the same time, though, it did open up a conversation. It tapped very much into um, that feeling of uh, women, girls feeling safe in society because it's like if you can't go for a run at half four in the afternoon in broad daylight and, you know, and be safe, then it taps into that kind of visceral um, socialization, which is, you know, you must be vigilant for your safety at all times and, you know, really you can never relax. And and I think that was where a lot of the anger came from and that's why this particular case sparked such a huge uh, response. And also we were very much primed to do so because you mentioned Sarah Everard or, or one of the, the, the listeners mentioned Sarah Everard. It was about a year after that had happened. And when that happened, there was a, a, an outpouring and a sharing online of women sharing their experiences of how they try to manage their safety, you know. And, and a lot of that led to kind of conversations with men who were, you know, surprisingly, I suppose, surprised. But what it meant was that it became very, very clear that women uh, move in in society, both in their private spaces and in public spaces, with a different level of tension than men do. And uh, and that's something we really need to dig into. If you want to get in touch, 53106 at a cost of 30 cents, or you can WhatsApp, <coughs> excuse me, 087 106 text to say, all you have to do is go on to TikTok Live at any time of the day, and nearly instantly you'll come across these cohorts stirring up anti-immigrant and pro-Irish propaganda and lies, and that's where a lot of the protests are organised from, says this texter. Thank you to Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid, to Adrian Sweeney, Director of Paris Court Springs Health Farm. I finally managed to pronounce it correctly. And newsreader here at News Talk, and Dahi Darosh, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, and uh, Fianna Fáil Councillor. The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk.